Our psalm of the day is Psalm To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be, they shall be put to shame who are wonderfully tremendous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the, for the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast are the steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him who he will instruct in the way that he should, should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he, and he who knows them is... To, the, to them is covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm low and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with the violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul, deliver me, let, not, let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson can be found in the second chapter of Titus. Now, I know your bulletin says that we will be reading verses 11 through 14, but we're actually going to be reading the whole chapter. So be patient. God says this in his word. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. They cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not sh- but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, 
bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, you are a great and good God, and we ask that you would open our eyes this morning, that we would see wonderful and encouraging things in this portion of your scriptures. Would you teach us, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Now, I'm a bit ashamed to, uh, to acknowledge this in public, especially in front of all of you, and especially after Chuck made a, uh, a big hubbub about the Hallmark Channel. But Cassie and I have been watching a Hallmark Channel show. Now, I by no means am a Hallmark man, but this one particular show I like. It's called When Calls the Heart. It's a show about a frontier town in the early 1900s, and it follows a few main characters, a school teacher and uh, a, a Canadian Mountie on his horse and his cool hat, and a, uh, and a restaurant owner, a local restaurant owner. Uh, and in one particular episode, a new boy comes to town because the railroad is coming through and new people are coming to work on the railroad. And this boy's name is Earl. He showed up with his father and his brother, his younger brother, and he begins terrorizing all of the children at the schoolhouse. He gets in fights. He picks on the, the littlest girl in the school, even tears her, her, te- her teddy bear that she calls Brownie, uh, and she cries. Uh, and, and it eventually comes to a head when he... Uh, vandalizes the school, vandalizes the schoolhouse. They walk in, and it's terror. And Miss Thatcher, the school teacher, gets so exasperated that she eventually expels him from school unless he apologizes and fix them, fixes the mess that he made. Now, after dealing with all of his shenanigans, she finally finds out why he is acting the way he is. You see, he was acting out because he believed he was the reason his mother abandoned their family. They showed up, and it was only he and his son and his father, and he believed it was his fault. He was letting his belief about this, uh, this particular incident direct his behavior. You see, he would push away anyone that got close because he didn't want to feel the pain of abandonment again. He was letting this belief about his reality and about his Uh, situation direct his behavior. And the same is true with us. We let what we believe is true about our reality, about uh, what the way we think the world works, the belief, our belief about God and our relation to him, we let that belief direct our behavior. And it affects the way we live. And Paul is very keenly aware of this in verse 11. See, he makes this massive claim about reality. Something that is contrary to what the, the Cretans, those who Titus is ministering to, very, something contrary to what they are believing. He gives this massive list of duties, these responsibilities of living in God's household for older men and women, for younger men and women, for bondservants and others. And then right after this list, he says, for or because. For or because the grace of God has appeared. Do these things. 
Because God's grace has appeared. His claim, Paul's claim here, is that God crossed the divide between creator and creature in the incarnation. That he put on flesh and blood. That he put on bones. That not losing any of his godness, he became human for us. Offering, bringing salvation for all people. But so what? If God has crossed that divide between creator and creature, if he has put on flesh and blood for us, what does that mean for us on December 31st, 2017? As we are on the cusp of a new year. What's that mean? First, we see in verse 14 that God breaks the bondage of slavery. He breaks the bondage of our yesterday. Look at verse 14 with me. He says that this great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. God has, in the incarnation, God breaks the bondage of yesterday. You see, what Paul is saying here is that Jesus had a task. He had a mission He had to accomplish. When he put on flesh and blood and crossed that divide, his task was to offer himself. Was to offer himself as a sacrifice. And this sacrifice accomplished two things. The first is that it accomplished redemption. Paul says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And so Jesus offers himself as a ransom. As a ransom payment to deliver us from sin. Because we're stuck in this bondage to decay. We're stuck in this state of sin and misery. And the only thing that will get us out is is Christ offering himself as a ransom. He says of himself in the Gospel of Mark, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, by offering himself as a sacrifice, he redeems us. He redeems us and delivers us from sin. But not only that, he goes a step further. It wasn't just enough that we were delivered from sin. He also, Paul also says that he gave himself to purify for himself a people for his own possession. So he not only purchases us with his blood, he also cleanses us with his blood. He purifies us. He cleanses from sin. And so not only, does he, uh, uh, not only does he cleanse the guilt of sin, not only does he remove the guilt of sin, but he also removes the power of sin by cleansing us. And so he breaks that bondage of yesterday. He breaks our bondage to sin and decay by offering himself as a sacrifice. I was reading an article the other day entitled... Um, New Year's resolutions you should make based on science. Yeah, we're getting scientific now with our New Year's resolutions. And it begins like this. The most common New Year's resolutions tend to be vague goals intended to get your life together by losing weight, eating healthier, or exercising more, which is so true of mine. But most people don't successfully follow through on their, on their resolutions. That's where science can help. Using specific science-based resolutions, you can boost your chances of successfully transforming your life in the new year. Man, that sounds great. If only it were true. But you see, there, 
every year we hear about New Year's resolutions. Every year we make them ourselves. We make them in hopes that something will be better. But one of the large reasons why we make New Year's resolutions is because when we look back at the year prior, at this past year, there's something that we regret. There's something that brings us shame and guilt. That's why they're so popular. Because we're able to look back at at the previous year and you say, well, you didn't lose the weight that you wanted, or you didn't exercise as much as you had intended, or you didn't uh, keep all 30 days of the Whole30 diet. You were like me and only did 11. Or we could go even further and deeper into our own souls. You didn't spend as much time with your children as you had wanted. You didn't take that family vacation that you had promised your family. You and your spouse fought more, and you had intended to go to marriage counseling but didn't. You got in a fight with your grandfather and so, uh, bef- and, and weren't able to say you're sorry before he passed. Friends, what are those moments? What are those moments of 2017 that you regret? As you reflect not only on 2017, but on your whole life, what are those moments and those seasons that bring guilt and shame? That you feel the weight of your sin? Because it's those moments, those seasons, that Jesus gave himself for, that he offered himself as a sacrifice to redeem you and to purify you. He doesn't leave you to wallow in your guilt and your shame. Instead, he takes your place, takes your guilt and shame upon himself, and he derobes your guilt and shame, and he re-robes you with his righteousness, his justice, and his goodness. That's what he does for us. He breaks the bondage of yesterday. And secondly, Verse 12 teaches us that he patiently teaches us today. Look at, with it, look at verse 12. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, often uh, many of us misunderstand this language of training. We take it in a negative light as if we are to punish or discipline ourselves Uh, in order to lose weight or run a marathon or, like me, go to the refrigerator. Um, We have to discipline and and work hard. We we think that this training aspect is, is something of a punishment. But I don't think that's what Paul is referring to here. It's not as if God is punishing us in in order to get us to act right, in order for us to, in order to get us to do things right. There's another aspect of training that we often forget. It's the patient teaching, the patient showing of a, of a parent to a child. It's the, the patient teaching of a father to a son, of a mother to a daughter. It's not meritorious training as if we are somehow earning our, our standing with God. It's not as if we are going to obey enough to get his affection. No, because we already have his his affection. It's a patient guidance by a father to his children in the ways of God. And that's what God does for us. He's slowly teaching us how to live fully human lives in his world. Now, uh, 
Cassie and I have been trying to teach Maddie Grace how to say please. Um, she'll say things like, uh, me want food, me want food, or, uh, or me want wawa, which means me want, I want water, or me want to go outside. Uh, and so Cassie and I have to look at Maddie Grace and say, Maddie Grace, how do you ask? She'll look up at us with her beautiful blue eyes and she'll go, please. She says it with angst and passion. As if, as soon as she says please, she'll get what she wants. Um, now, this isn't taking us weeks to teach her. Uh, it's actually taking months. Months of this repetition of, Maddie Grace, how do you ask? Maddie Grace, how do you ask? Is that how you ask? How do you ask? Please. It's months and months of repetition. Now, she's not earning our affection. She's not earning our love by her obedience. She already has it. She already has our affection. She already has our love because she is ours. And the same is true with God. The same is true with God. When, we, when God is in his patience and his grace, when he teaches, guides, and corrects us, he does so as a loving father, teaching his children how to live properly in his world, restoring to us our humanity. Because you see, sin actually dehumanizes us. We stop living as human beings we're properly meant to live. We stop living as human beings we're meant to live in God's world. And so what God is doing, part of the process of God training and teaching us as his children is him restoring to us our humanity. And Paul says this restoration process, this patiently teaching us today, is that we learn to live self-controlled. He says he's training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, meaning that we know uh, that we have a proper control over our desires and actions and understand how those desires and actions fit and work within God's world. Then he goes on and says that we, are, we learn to live upright. Another way of saying that is that we live justly or righteously in relation to other people. So we're learning what it means to act justly in relationship with others, to treat them with kindness and dignity, with patience and love. And then he says that we learn to live godly lives in the present age. Another simpler way of, of saying that is just that we live obedient lives to God's commandments. That's what it means to live a godly life, is living in relationship with God, obedient to his commandments. This training process helps us understand how to live as whole human beings in proper relationship with ourselves, being self-controlled with others, living upright, and with God, living a godly life, obedient to his commandments. So God breaks the bondage of yesterday, and he patiently teaches us today how to live as whole human beings in his world. And then lastly, by crossing the divide between creator and creature, God secures hope for tomorrow. Look at verse 13. Paul says this, after he says that God's grace has brought salvation and he is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. He says this, that we are people 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, great, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul is referring to here the, the second coming of Jesus. He's referring to that great day when Jesus comes back to renew all things. He says, God's grace has appeared, personified in Jesus, that His grace has appeared. 2,000 years ago, His grace appeared, bringing salvation, accomplishing redemption and purification for us. And then again, one day, His glory will appear, personified by, in Jesus. His glory will appear at the second coming. And that's where our hope lies. And this whole concept of hope in the second, uh, in the second coming or the second appearing of Jesus um, seems counterintuitive to some of us. It seems a little, um, at least initially, as I, was, uh, as I was spending more time in God's Word as a young Christian, uh, this was confusing to me. This idea of our hope being in, uh, in the return. Because I thought that uh, that our hope lied in heaven. You see, it seems counterintuitive for two reasons. One is because we live in a culture that says our hope in, lies in living our best life now. We have a plethora of self-help books that are the whole purpose of them are to help us live our best life now. There are Christian pastors and authors who even write books titled that. How to live your best life now. But that's what our culture says. There is no afterlife, and so we have to live now. Carpe diem, seize the day. And then, if you grew up in the church like me, you, uh, you hear that our hope is heaven. That the hope of the Christian life is that we die and, we, um, and our souls go to be with Jesus in heaven. But that doesn't seem to, to line up with what Paul is saying here. That, that our hope doesn't necessarily lie in this thing called heaven. He says that our hope lies in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That our appearing, that, that, that our hope lies in Jesus showing up again one day. And with him, the resurrection of the dead. You see, our hope doesn't lie in this disembodied state in heaven. Our hope lies in a fleshly existence on a renewed earth. That is our hope. That's where it lies. I was uh, listening to uh, one of my um, theological mentors. Uh, his, his name is uh, Tom Wright. And he stated once that the hope that is put before us right through the whole Bible, is not about people leaving earth and going upstairs to this place called heaven, but about the heavenly city coming down to be here on earth so that heaven and earth are joined together. Now, he said it in a British accent, so it sounded way cooler than what I just said. But that's our hope. That's our hope, is that the heavenly city would come down and meet earth, and it would be renewed. And it would be cleansed from guilt and shame and sin. And we would live a fleshly existence. An embodied existence here on earth. 
Because that's what we were made for. That's the Christian hope. That's the hope that we offer to a world gone wrong. That's the hope that we offer to our children as they grow up, hoping that they would look to that hope one day and grasp it themselves. That's the hope that we offer ourselves in time of fear and anxiety and shame and guilt. That's what we have to hold on to desperately. And that's what we, that's the hope that will get us through living in this world gone wrong. So I'll close with this. Uh, Miss Thatcher was exasperated and, um, and, and annoyed with this boy named Earl. But once she found out what really was going on in his soul, she went to speak to his father. And she told him uh, what was going on, and his, his father knew right away what was happening. And so he actually went to his son and corrected his belief. He told him that it wasn't his fault that his mother abandoned him. That actually she didn't abandon him. She had abandoned his father. And that correction of his, his reality helped him to live freely. Helped, helped him to live in, in safety and comfort knowing the truth of his reality. His belief had changed his behavior and so he actually went back to the school and cleaned it up and apologized to Miss Thatcher. Trusting this reality that God crossed the divide between creator and creature for you and for me to redeem us, to purify us, to break the bondage of yesterday helps us live more fully human lives in a world gone wrong, but in a world that God is slowly making right. So we can trust that God is patiently restoring our humanity today because he has broken the bondage of yesterday. And we can have hope today because of what he will do tomorrow to renew all things and to make all things right. Let's pray. Lord God, we trust that you are the one who is making all things right. That you are the one who is working and offering and and. and and doing the hard work for us. We ask that you would make that a reality in our lives. Encourage our hearts this morning to believe that, to trust it, to trust that you are the God who offered yourself, offered your son Jesus as a sacrifice to redeem and to purify. Would you train us this morning to believe that and to live obediently? to your commandments, and would you offer us hope, hope that we can grasp onto, hope that is tangible for us, even now as we come to your table. Would it be a living hope? We ask in Jesus' name.